Welcome to this episode of the Security Clearance Careers Podcast, ClearCast, your source for security clearance, intelligence community, espionage, national security, and defense contracting updates in our exclusive interviews with intelligence community and government leaders. Hi, this is Lindy Kaiser, and welcome. I am super delighted to be talking today to the Honorable Ellen McCarthy. She is the chairwoman and CEO of Truth and Media Cooperative and Noodle Labs, but has also had a long and extensive career across government. So she's just a great voice within this community. Every time I hear her speak, she always has interesting conversations to bring to the table. And she's a part of a lot of really relevant conversations that are happening in and around the intelligence community about media disinformation, how we disseminate information and open source intelligence across the intelligence community. So I really wanted to chat with her as we're kind of thinking through some of these topics, both from a career perspective and what we're looking at in terms of talent, but also just in terms of how the community builds and changes and evolves. And so thank you so much for taking the time to chat with me. Lydia, it's so good to be here. And you're isn't it exciting? Because you're right. There's so much being talked about right now. I just sort of feel like we're at this sort of changing point in terms of how we work with open source information, the private sector's role in national security. I just feel like we're at this this really interesting time in our history. Yeah, and you've been a part of a lot of those conversations that we've had with the Intelligence National Security Alliance around these topics. What I've loved is they have, like you said, getting private sector, the government, industry, and also Congress and decision makers there all on the same table is really difficult. But I see some movement around that happening. So talk to me a little bit about that and your experience with that. You've worked with some really innovative agencies around intelligence collection information, obviously Department of State INR, which is a real leader in this space. NGA have also had a ton of private sector experience to bring to the table. How have all of those career arcs led you to what you're doing now with Truth in Media and your focus? there? Well, you know, I've got to tell you that starting from the bottom line up front, you know, so I am in the process with Megan Jaffer of launching this thing called the Truth and Media Cooperative. And it's just a great segue to your question, because there is so much going on right now in government, in the private sector, in academia, in the tech industry, in the media industry, everybody's talking about this, but they're all sort of looking at it from a different vantage point. They're all passionate about it. They all want to see a world where fact-based information is available to Americans. And yet there's not sort of this single strategy or there's not this integration of all these sectors to work as one. And so I think the Truth and Media Cooperative is really looking at can we bring together these sectors, identify areas where we can leverage all the goodness that's going on, but just move together. You know, if Congress is passing this bill, can we make sure that academia is teaching their students about it? Can we work together? Can we self-organize? And I'll tell you, I got to this point really based on my time in government. And especially at my last job where I was working at the Bureau of Intelligence and Research at State, where it was just so clear that, you know, intelligence is but one source of information that policymakers use. You know, they have all other data streams that they consider when they either develop a policy or implement a policy, or even assess if that policy is doing what they mean for it to do. Intelligence is but one data stream. And if you're not integrated with them, if you're not sitting in the room, you're losing. You know, the reality is, is that those folks that are working this policy, they see the world very much from the perspective of what they want it to be. You know, Intel, we see the world the way it is. You know, there's no coloring it. And so if they don't like what the intelligence is saying, they're going to go someplace else. 
And and they do. And, you know, this the, the way we deliver intelligence, you know, back post World War Two and the way in which we need to deliver intelligence today is just is, is very different. In the World War Two era, intelligence was all the policymaker had. But today, the policymaker has so much more. They have clearance jobs. They have magazines. They have other people. They have other connections. And if they don't like what we have to say. They just move on. And so it really struck me as I was leaving INR, if that's the way it is in the policy world, no wonder the American people are just overwhelmed. And, you know, it's so interesting. In Washington, we look at this purely as a political problem. But as I've traveled across the country, disinformation or misinformation is not just a political problem. It's an economic problem. It's a psyche problem. It has affected us psychologically. And we need to get our arms around it. And so why not an intel officer who has spent over 30 years working across 18 agencies, supporting different departments, different mission areas? Why not? Who better than an intel officer to get involved in this fight? Well, and I love what you say there, too, because I think so many people have such a visceral reaction to it being politicized, right? Because I feel that, too, when you talk, start talking about disinformation and misinformation, people assume that you're talking about Russia stealing the election or you're, you're somehow making it political. But we are a media and content saturated society. So it touches everything that we're doing and everywhere we're involved in. So I think some people who want to be apolitical, right, and avoid talking about it then we really miss out on having the conversation. Media, information, disinformation, I think are things that a lot more people should care about. um, Gallup just put out some recent data that highlighted um, American trust in formal institutions is at an all-time low. So that's public schools and religious organizations. But it's particularly low against media sources. And so they define media sources as things like public schools, as things like social media, as things like traditional media. You know, media really is It's a platform to move information. Everybody thinks about it as traditional media, Walter Cronkite. But media is pretty much anything that passes over a lane to get disseminated from one point to another. So public schools are included in Gallup's definition of what is media. You know, what's so interesting about their latest data, though, is while media organizations have experienced the biggest decline in trust across the country. On the other hand, something like, I don't know, 75% of the American people believe that we need media, we need news organizations. That So, so they, they want to receive information from traditional social media sources, but they don't trust any of it. So, you know, we want it, but we're, we know we're not getting it. That's That's just crazy. Yeah. Well, and that's, and again, the, a key part of the reason I, I wanted to talk to you is because I want you to teach me your ways because we, I have that issue with clearance jobs, right? Like I, we have a key role. We're on this federal news radio show. And the purpose of that is to provide information, but I also support clearance jobs. So I sometimes feel like, am I a part of the problem, right? Like, cause we are pr- trying to provide information. So that's kind of always the interesting arc of it is like, what is media do we need to have a standard definition? And when we're self-policed, right? Because I feel like I have like an internal compass and I have a, a clearance jobs brand guide and a, and a personal purpose, but that's really kind of based on my organizations and my integrity and how much do you trust that? 
I don't know. It opens up this whole can of worms, right? Well, like, trust I, me, I'm, it's like it's like I'm from the government not, and I'm here I, to help. You but. and I have talked about this before. I mean, I think there's a so I think we need to take this discussion up about 50,000 feet. And the reality is that when the intelligence community was created in 1947, it really was the only game in town. Information not only needed to be shared, but it needed to be protected because the way in which it was collected required sensitive sources and methods. You didn't want anybody else to get your information. So we classified. I think today is a much different day for for the reasons I just talked to you about. I think the intelligence community is not nearly as integrated with the people who need it as it used to be. Because if we're not, those policymakers, those decision makers can go someplace else. And they are because it's available and, and, and you know, data is available and great. <laughs> it's easy to get to nowadays. Intelligence is not the only game in town. And so I asked myself, well, why are we, you know, why are we protecting information that for the most part is available openly? Why are we expending so much effort in protecting information? that doesn't need to be protected. Now the media plays a bigger role in sharing information than ever before. In some ways, the intel community is, is competing with media. And so that relationship has gone from being very uncomfortable because we don't want to leak anything. We're competing with you. And so it's really, and getting back to the leaking part, this gets back to all the, the trust part. We protected information back post-World War II, but now we're protecting not only information, but we're, we're protecting people we're talking to. You know, we're, we're very sensitive to the fact that I might give something to the media that I shouldn't give to the media. And now not only is the data going to be compromised, but maybe reputations and policies and personal relationships. It's just, it's become this love-hate relationship. And there's so many ways we can fix that, by, by the way. But, you know, so the media is viewed as an incredibly necessary resource for the American people. The intelligence community has this love-hate relationship with it. Although, to be fair, I think this current administration under Avril has done a tremendous job of leveraging the media and using the media to share information in a way that I haven't seen in quite a long time, especially when, it, when you look at what's going on with Russia and Ukraine right now. They're getting far more sophisticated in their use of the media than they have in the past. And I view that as a very good sign. But we still have a long way to go. And I think it also gets to this discussion about what is the intelligence community? What is our role? Who do we serve? And are we leveraging commercially and publicly available information in a way that we should be? so that we're, we don't have to worry about leaking and, and compromising, so that we have a much better relationship with, with media organizations and we use them to support this national security mission. Well, no, and that directly ties to my question about kind of overclassification on this issue too, because I think that is the problem when everything is classified, then nothing becomes classified. You, you're drowning in all of the secrets that you have that aren't actually secrets. And then you you get this disconnect right because we know that there's so much available through open source. Open source information can come into the IC and then instantly be classified. You know, like that's the painful uh, part. You're like, we crazy. just pulled, we pulled it in and we pulled it in from open source and somehow it got classified. But you're like, how? And then the stovepipe to get it back out. So we kind of get into this like vicious circle and cycle. And I think that points to like the biggest issue. If we were truly only protecting the most critical information, we would be safer and more secure, which is 
incredibly important. Like, I mean, I'm with clearance jobs, so I have a vested interest in keeping the security clearance process up and running, but we don't need all of those people to do that. And we know that across government, there's a ton of innovation coming in from the private sector. So maybe speak to that a little bit, because like you had a line, probably my favorite quote of the year, I'll call it my, my quote of 2022, was talking about how the whole apparatus here changes and you have to become an insight provider, not just a secrets keeper. And I loved that because I'm biased. I think we have the best insights. I think that our analysts uh, have the best insights and have the best critical thinking abilities. If we don't drown them in the documentation, we can really get a lot done. I do think that we need a fundamental change to our business model. And that and that really is, is that the Intel community, I think we need to look at ourselves as an insight provider. And, and that's in everything we do, whether we're working HR or security or acquisition, our job is to deliver insights to those who need it. And I think that actually would, would do a lot, by the way, to working acquisition reform and security clearance reform and hiring. I think if everybody was on the same page, our job is to deliver the best insights that we can to whoever needs it, to include the American people, by the way. Again, my time at State. You know, State Department is a global organization. Because we have priorities in the intelligence community, not everything is looked at all the time. And I knew that just because uh, certain countries or certain functions were not national intelligence priorities, that that didn't mean that there was not information that we could use to support those requirements. You know, this concept of only things that are the highest requirement, only things that are that are the president's or the secretaries of state requirements get most of our focus, but everything else we have to spend less time on. I understand that because we don't have money to do everything. But I also say, well, wait a minute, though. I, I know Deloitte has offices around the world. My husband works for them. Like, why aren't we using Deloitte, leveraging Deloitte to get information on what's going on in places that may not meet the highest national security requirements, but still we have ambassadors and missions that need this? Why aren't we leveraging more open source? You know, Amy Ziegart in her book, Spies, Lies, and Algorithms, she's the one that said back during the Cold War, 80% of all Intel reporting was based on classified sources. Today, she says 80% of Intel reporting is based on publicly available information. I know she's right. So that gets to your question about overclassification. If it's already there, why are we classifying it? And to your point, we have some of the best analysts, collectors, HR people. We have the, the intelligence community is already exceptional at developing insights. But how are we at delivering insights? And and I think that's where we need some work. Mm, I love it. You're so quotable. I, they, the hits uh, just keep coming. I love it. Yeah, but that's and that that was I'll tell you that was INR's challenge. INR has some of the best analysts, and I can say this. I started off with naval intelligence. I have worked at most of the organizations that do all source intelligence. And I am not, I, I am very comfortable with, I think I know, I, I saw INR as some of the best analysts I've ever worked with. And it was for much the same reason why I always thought ONI was also very good. There's something to being connected with the people who are receiving your information. So if you are, if you have a relationship with the person who's actually using your intelligence, it's so much different. It's so much richer. It's so much more valuable. Also, if you just, love what you do, that you stick with it for such a long time. You truly become an expert at it. And these people love their jobs. Um, it's not about pay. It's not about bonuses because they don't get paid as much as everybody else does in the IC. For them, self-actualization comes from sitting with the secretary of state or the ambassador or the undersecretary 
or the National Security Advisor. You don't get that at a lot of the other all-source organizations. That's INR's secret sauce. Like, INR is like the Mighty 300, like the movie. Like, this is, they're like, but I mean, but analysts, but they are like the small and mighty kind of force within this. Kind of like I the think un- you wrote a, did you write an article about that? I did. <laughs> I, but they are. I mean, they're like a small, mighty agency. And I think there's always like the, we, how can we learn across the IC from organizations like that? Rather than, I mean, you have to be really vested in this community to know, to know INR. And if you are, you do. Aren't there lessons learned that we could pick up from them and transition into... INR analysts start their day with unclassified information. They start with cables and basic... They they started as the Office of Security Services, OSS's research and analysis branch. They are fundamentally researchers at their heart. They start their day, for the most part, with research that's openly available or cables, which are openly available. They add on to that, which is another reason why I think INR was always the interesting place where you could start making this shift and do it iteratively. You don't have to blow up the entire intelligence community, but let's start at a place like INR. And I always thought that INR was small by design. It wasn't small by design. It was small by, I I hate to say mismanagement because I don't want to insult those who came before me because there were a million assistant secretaries before me who were all incredible. But it's where the, the office of the DNI could really help those organizations like INR in terms of ensuring that they're getting the investment that you know they need. And, that, and even INR needs to represent itself when it's dealing with the National Intelligence Program. That's just not where their forte was. So INR needs a major investment. And so why not invest it and build it in a way that looks like we think the IC could look in the future. No, I love that. I want to talk about disinformation a little bit. I mean, because I have to hit you with all of the controversial topics. It's definitely having a moment. I think it's an important topic, but sometimes like, again, I feel like it gets swept up in the cycle of, you know, talking about tweeting and Elon Musk. And But do you think outside of the academic and government cluster, we kind of talked about this at the beginning, so we're coming full circle, which is how all of my conversations go. But do you think outside of that government academia circle, people care about disinformation. We know people trust less. So is that a part of it? The disinformation tie into like what you were mentioning in the Gallup polls about this kind of distrust element in media outlets and entities and in the broader, I think, government and IC as well. So I'll tell you that I think this problem is is getting bigger and bigger. You know, I think it's not going away. And the reason why we're standing up, Tim, is because I think we need to communicate to the all American people, even those who live outside D.C. that, you know, everybody knows not to trust what they're reading, but they just don't know where to go. And so it's, you know, we've I've talked to people, hundreds of people across the country of all ages, socioeconomic backgrounds, like almost everybody knows this is a problem, but they don't know what to do to fix it. We talked to a group of students who said, you know, the assumption is that because we're digital natives, we know what to do. And, and they don't. This one young woman student from Georgia Tech who just before the election said, I don't know who to vote for. The the problem is is that in this country, we tend to change things after big kinetic events. I think we're already living in a, and it's not a kinetic event, but we're living in a world where if we don't trust anything, how do we solve some of the biggest problems we're facing as a nation? And by the way, these are not all problems the government can fix. In fact, many of them can't. I think disinformation is one where 
government can play some role, but we're already seeing the challenges. DHS tries to stand up a disinformation governance board, and it's immediately taken down because nobody trusts DHS. And, and I think the fact that there's so many entities that know this, so you've got science, academia, you've got all these organizations, media even knows this is a problem. We need to band together and we need to fix it. And so I, I'm not suggesting that we're going to fix skepticism of the media. We're a country that was based on being skeptical of everything. And that's part of our beauty. But the reality is, is that we also need a world where fact-based information is actually readily available. I would love a world where it's also in high demand. So when you wake up in the morning, Lindy, you know, you can still read everything you're reading, but you know that there's a couple of places, there's the Encyclopedia Britannica, that, that you know that you're just going to get the facts. And, and you want to look at it. You want you want to have your debate with your, your family about something, but it's based on information that everyone knows is fact-based. And then you go from there. I had that growing up. I grew up with the Washington Post and the New York Times, uh, Walter Cronkite. I mean, they were not always right, but they were trusted. And I knew for the most part what I was getting, what I was reading was accurate. We have publications like that today. We just don't trust them. So how do we educate the American people to understand that there are places that you can go? There are tools that you can use and you really want to do it. You, you care again. And that's a people problem. That's not a media problem. So how do we get to the consumers? How do, how do we make them understand that if we don't fix this, we're already easy targets for Russia and China and soon other countries. This is something we need to do. We need to do it soon. No, I mean, I love this topic. I love chatting with you. Thank you so much to the Honorable Ellen McCarthy. You have such I'm a- Ellen. I am not the Honorable Ellen. Ellen. I mean, the honor... I- yeah. If I had a title, I'm still get I'm still trying to get people to call me the queen of content, but it's an honorary title. So, oh, I you know, think, you know what, I honorable. Think this is Katie Keller, editor at clearancejobs.com. Thank you for listening to this episode of Clearedcast. For more information on career and recruiting advice, visit news.clearancejobs.com.